Welcome to the ABA and PT podcast, where I interview scientists and practitioners from the world of precision teaching and behaviour analysis and share their journeys of how they found their way to the science of behaviour, as well as their discoveries through the use of the standard acceleration chart. I'm Mandy Mason, a scientist practitioner in Perth, Australia, impacted by my daughter with autism, who caused me to knock on enough doors to find my way to this extraordinary field. And I'm on a journey to share how precision teaching and the use of the standard acceleration chart can change the world and make it a better place to live. I'm managing to combine my two great loves of sprinting and working with kids and still getting away with it. Welcome to the first podcast of 2022 and to episode five of the ABA and PT podcast. What a gift I've been given in opening the year with Elizabeth Horton, a precision teacher for more than 50 years, talking about combining heart and science and her journey from attending a workshop with Ogden Lidsley to observing Anne Starlin's classroom, to incorporating precision teaching with her own students in classrooms and eventually opening her own learning centre and all that she's learned along the way. She goes into how she's recorded her own behaviours and that her students are still teaching her every single day. Although you can't see it in this podcast, Elizabeth has a smile that would light up a room and you'll enjoy hearing her joy, passion and excitement as she talks about all things precision teaching and about transforming kids' lives through the use of the standard acceleration chart. I hope you enjoy this episode as much as I enjoyed interviewing her. Welcome to Heart Plus Science with Elizabeth Horton. So it's my absolute pleasure today to welcome Elizabeth Horton to this podcast. And I'm, um, where are you, Elizabeth, again? I'm in California, Jackson, Jackson, California. Yeah, we're, we're only about 26 hours by plane away, but it feels <laughs> like you're right in the room with me. And it's, I can't even believe this is happening in my life. You know that um, someone's name that I've heard for a long, long time. And of course, every time anyone m- mentions your name, there's, you know, faces just light up. And so um, I first uh, learned about you from Dr. Kimberly Behrens, who, you know, you've had a profound influence on. And uh, and then I went ahead and, and bought all your materials, of course. So every day when we are running writing in our clinic, your name comes up and a thousand times a day, I wish I could pick up the phone to you and ask you all these really complex things that happen when you teach a kid to handwrite. But anyway, we have you in person Welcome. Thank you so much for being here. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to, uh, you know, having a conversation together. Now, just before we went um, went on, you were talking to me about how you describe yourself, and I really loved that. Do you want to talk about how you describe yourself and what you do? I describe myself as an educator. That is because I'm a teacher, and I'm also have studied behavior. So I'm a behaviorist at one level, and I'm a coach. I really believe in practice and coaching my students. So I consider that all, and I call myself, like I said, an educator, because I think it incorporates all those three things. And uh, I'm so delighted and blessed to be an educator. Yeah, and you're still still working with kids? I'm still working with students, and and I live in a small town, And uh, I have a whole bunch of kids, but I only take a few, and especially now during COVID, because I clean up in between. So I have a little bit of a waiting list, but uh, the people in the town, they appreciate me. And uh, it's been wonderful to make a change in the lives of so many students that you know their whole family. So I guess you have students that you've worked with from a young age that you still have contact with? Oh, yes. 
Well, one of the students, Terry Harris, who I worked with years ago, who has cerebral palsy, yes. uh, he and I give workshops together and he's a counselor and has his master's and everything. And so I have contact with families. In fact, just recently, a most wonderful thing, a message was on my machine and a Dr. Fenderson wanted me to call. And 20 years ago, I saw his daughter and son when I had the learning center in Napa, California. So anyway, I called him back and he and his wife proceeded to thank me for helping their daughter who had learning issues and their son who we, we accelerated and how my name still keeps coming up at their household because of what we did for their family. And I just, I'm amazed that, you know, we're able to really make a difference in the lives of so many youngsters. Yeah. And I, of course, those ripple effects go throughout the world for all of the work that you've done in, in, well, in my clinic, all the way across the other side of the world. So, yeah, incredible what you've um, what you've done in your lifetime. So, you know, how did this all start for you? Like, where did your passion for teaching come from? I think it came when when I was a student. You know, a youngster, I had trouble learning to read, and um, I had been. My, as I call it, my hear channel, my auditory system was not intact. And my visual system, which I'm lucky to see today, I had been in a gun accident, which I won't go into the detail, but it really had affected my sensory input. And reading was very difficult for me. And my mother, bless her heart, with having six children, but my mother taught me to read, and it's some of the same things I use today. I learned from my mother, like practice consistently. She Every day she practiced me. She involved me, letting me decide what stories in the book that I wanted to read. So she involved the learner, which is the child knows best, and we know to involve the learner. She had a name for me. Now, the aim didn't require frequency, but it was an accuracy aim. I had to read the entire story with no mistakes before I could pass. And she had a reward system for me. I mean, it's so amazing that some of those are my grassroots of what I still do. Where do you think her learning came from? Well, I think just being patient. She did go to teacher school before she had children. She went to a year to be a teacher. Right. But she never taught school, but she 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 loved babies and she loved having children and teaching and doing. Yeah. So, you know, she was amazing that way. And uh, the other thing that happened to me that in elementary school, I, I grew up very rurally in five miles from the nearest store and post office, two room school, one through four, five through eight. In my class was a boy named David. I had a little bit of reading problems, but he had significant problems. He, he only spoke one or two words. He never spoke in sentences. Yeah. And he was in my class. And because we all taught each other in this little elementary school, because there's so many different levels, because everyone was in the classes together. And I often worked with him. And I found out that 
one day I had him pointing to Christmas things. I can still see the book. And I think we were in fourth grade. And I'd point to the Christmas tree, point to Santa, and he'd point to things. And then I asked him to point to words. And he pointed to them. Wow. And I said out loud, he can read, he can read. And the teacher looked over at me and said, no, he cannot read. And I said, come and see, he can read, he can read. <laughs> and oh. so they all, all the kids gathered around and I had him point to the words and he could point to the words. He knew them. Wow. And I'll never forget that you can't judge what's going on by what you see. So this was, this was you in fourth grade teaching another student. It's so incredible because Abigail Corkin told me that basically her teacher recruited her in the classroom as an educator assistant in the classroom (laughs) because she would finish all her work so quickly the teacher wanted to occupy her so she was helping so there you go you showed from an early age that you you love to teach others right yeah well I would be working and he I would look over and he'd be looking at me knowing he wanted me to finish my work and come and help him wow and it taught me a lot about the kids tease me because he was a special, you know, and it didn't matter if they were teasing me. I really didn't care because I really wanted to help him because I, he was so excited when I helped him and he loved to point to words and point to new words and learn things. And so I think some of my love of teaching and working with came from my mother and from the students that, you know, yeah. Helped when I was what in elementary school. Did he? Did you? Did you go through school with him? I went clear through high school with him, yeah. and in fact, I just went to his memorial service. Oh, really? And uh, I had lunch with him about four months ago because I hadn't seen him for like fifteen years, and a friend of mine knew him, and they arranged for us to have lunch together. He still lived a very Limited, I don't want the word I want to use, but the friends he developed in his community looked after him. Yeah. He he did have a rich life. He had all the animals because he lived on a, on a ranch too. Right. So he had a lot of property and his family took, looked after him and came and, you know, visited him. But he never did go on. Like his brother told me at the, at the celebration of life ceremony, he said, he could fix things that his brother, who's an art, you know, uh, engineer, couldn't fix. Wow. He said he could think of things and fix things, and he knew a lot, but he didn't know how to speak yeah. and put his thoughts in words. So it was, anyway, interesting. Goodness, amazing. You're still in contact with him all of that time. And you said um, he grew up on a ranch. Did you grow up on a ranch? Yeah, I grew up on a cattle ranch in Northern California, five miles, like I said, on a dirt road to our ranch in a beautiful, beautiful valley uh, with a river that went through. So we had lots of swimming and fishing in the summer. And uh, we lived off the land, basically. I mean, we we had a big garden. We had our meat and our fish and our pork and we smoked bacons and we lived differently than people live today and uh it was a wonderful life for a child i mean we had chores to do don't get me wrong we had things to do responsibilities for feeding animals and for taking care of certain things but uh it was good 
And how far was the school from the ranch? Five miles. Five miles, right. Yeah, on a dirt on a dirt road. And when it snowed in the winter, it was hard to get to school. Right. And, was uh, there a bus? It, it, no, there was no buses. My Ooh. mother got paid to bring us to school. Nobody Ooh. came by bus. Everyone brought their children to school or they walked from the little village. Right. And where were you in? Where did you fit in the six kids? What number uh, were you? I had two older sisters and then three young one in the six of us there was one boy he's just younger than i am right and did any of them go into teaching no yes my sister i have a sister younger than i am who's a teacher a, a precision teacher too oh, she's she really? ex, she's absolutely excellent teacher and has worked in regular and special ed all her career and we work a lot together we're oh, a team so wonderful. you know well, it's one of the things I hope I'll say enough times that people know. To me, if you're going to be into precision teaching and the measurement of learning, be part of a team. Yeah. It's so important to be a learner, to be part of a team. Those two things are really important because, uh, like you said, with Bob and you know John and Abigail, we're a community of people. Yeah. And we do things differently, and that's good. But we we keep our data consistent so we, you know, can talk about it. So I really believe in the team and my sister and I team a lot together. Yeah, that's wonderful. Yeah, I, um, I've been so blessed to be touched by so many precision teachers and um, oh, yeah. how generous you all are with what you know and your learning and also how humble you are um, at all of the input that you've had from people that came before you. So um well, it's, it's, and it's all the people, but it's all the learners, too. You learn from each one yeah. of them. I couldn't be without the teachers, the students that I've had that have been my teachers. Everyone I work with teaches me something, it seems like. I mean, I'm always amazed by, oh, yeah, this is a whole new thing, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, amazing. So from school, what happened after school? Where did, what was your next step after school? Well, mainly growing up on the ranch, we did th chores and things, you know, and we played a lot. We played a lot of games in the winter, especially after school, and uh, just hiked, fished, enjoyed nature as much as possible. Yeah. And uh, it was good. But my mom did teach us a lot of games. Yeah. I think games are really important. A lot of my learning sessions, I start with students with games. Oh, really? Like what sort of game? Like Blink. Blink okay. is called the world's fastest card game, and it's a wonderful game. And the oh, kids wow. learn discrimination. And I broke it down, and they, they get good at discriminating first. And then I have them practice, and then we play the game. Because I've broken it down so they can get very good and beat their parents, actually. Oh, wow. <laughs> I didn't know that game. Excellent. Oh, it's a, it's a very good game. And then I used something called the storybook, which is a memory game yeah. that the students do. And I use a lot of card games. I teach them different card, just to put the cards down fluently, then to, de to give one to each one, and then to put them into suits, red, black, red, black, and then diamonds, hearts, clubs, spades. And oh, um, this is brilliant. I just use that as a warm up when they come in because 
it's really important. I'm trying to think uh, uh, some of the other games too. Spot it. I use Spot it a lot too. Okay. The kids love Spot it, and um, Connect Four. I don't know. Anyway, yeah, I just really find games, and sometimes they bring games that they don't know how to play and they want to learn. And some of those I can teach them, and some they're too difficult. They're advanced. Yeah. But I can break down a lot of the games that they want to play with their family and teach them how to play it by breaking it down and getting fluent in each little component. Then they can play the game. (laughs) I really love that. I want to come back to that, Elizabeth, to talk (laughs) about, uh, yeah, component and composite skills because you just described that so beautifully about where where to get started. Yes. But so after, when you finish school, did you go to teacher school after that? Yeah, I went to to college and became a teacher. That was, you know, a, a big step in, even though my mom had gone, no one in our family had gone off. My two older sisters went to business school and dental nursing school, but they right. didn't go to university. Right. And um, we all liked to tease in the family because when I told my father in high school I wanted to go to college, he told me, I'm not paying for an MRS. You're just going to get married and it's a lot of money. And I said, but I really want to go. So he finally agreed that I could go. Wow. And where did you go? I went to Sac State. Right. Which is in Sacramento. Uh And uh, fortunately, I've been very blessed in my life to find people, families that have helped me out. You know, and I, I, in Sacramento, I met a family my last two years of college that, you know, I lived at their house and they really helped me. Their daughter was a teacher too, but we were in the same classes. So I've had so many blessings of people coming into my life that have influenced, you know. And then when I started uh, teaching, I taught not far from where I live right now. Right. In a little town called Sutter Creek, California. And the principal, I wanted to say that the principal told me, look, most teachers out of college don't know how to teach. And I suggest that you learn from the teachers here. But he said, I want to warn you, most young teachers don't get along at this little primary school. It was a primary school. We just had K-1, 2, 3. Yeah. And uh, he told me, too. Reading, writing, and math in the morning, reading, writing, math in the afternoon. Right. So I said, well, there's a piano in my classroom. When do we have music? And he said, on the way out to recess and the way into recess. Okay. (laughs) So when do we have art? He said, on Friday afternoons. And I thank him often for helping me understand practice in the primary grades. The kids, well, two things happened. One, most of the kids with the practice we gave them caught on and learned a lot. Yeah. But the other part of my heart sank because I did have a few learners who couldn't remember. Retention is what really was a concern of mine as a teacher. And I took so many courses. I took workshops. I went to conferences to try to find out who knew what to do about these little children who worked their hearts out and they couldn't read. Yeah. Sort of like me. But the moms weren't going to spend as many hours as my mom spent with me. Yeah. yeah. But some of them just by keeping them in after school and working with them and showing parents and 
you know, but I knew something was missing. And it was in all these courses I took, I become, it became certified to teach in those days, you won't believe this, but they called it neurologically impaired, emotionally disturbed. That was my yeah. credential. Wow. So, Where did you get that qualification from? From the state of California. It was part of our special ed credential. Okay. And did anyone along the way, when you were studying, did you meet anyone that, you know, was building fluency into their teaching back then? Nope. Not, not in the beginning. But once I got into this special program, the Neurological Pair of Motion Disturbed, yeah. I was very fortunate that I was, I was in the program about six months and they asked me to be a master teacher in the project because I had worked so hard to do individual programs for my students because these 10 disturbed boys were like David taught me. You have to make a program that's successful for them and then they want to do it. Yeah. So, you know, I worked many hours to have these programs so that they appointed me to be a master teacher. And then that's when I first, they flew me to the University of Washington to the experimental ed unit by when Norris Herring was running and Harold Kunzelman was the principal. And that's when I saw precision teaching for the first time. Uh Uh-huh. And what year was that? Do you remember what year that was? Oh, that was in 19... 69. Right. About that school year. It was complicated what was going on, but I loved the way the students responded. Again, I'm a person that looks at the heart of the child. (laughs) I believe in the big heart. You know, uh, people who know me know that I have hearts everywhere. (laughs) Yeah. Right. And uh, when your charts as well. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, that's, just made a big difference for me, but I couldn't figure out how in the world I was going to go back and try to train other teachers to do it. So what did you see? What did you learn? I learned that you need to keep track of time. Yes. I learned that they had this chart that told them things. I couldn't figure out the chart for anything that just in the time I was there. How long were you there? A week. They sent me for a week. A week, and they put a cordless prompter on me, and I had to go in and teach. And they would say, oh, yeah. "Do this, do that." <laughs> I love that. It was, <laughs> it was it was quite an experience. Wow. And um, then after that, when I went back to California, there was a workshop that was given at the Behavior Modification Conference in Napa, California, that all Glinsley and Eric Houghton gave. Wow. And that partly changed my life because they went when Tuesday night, Wednesday night, Thursday night, all day Friday, all day Saturday. Yeah. And um, I knew they were on to something. I knew it, you know, because they they presented the pinpointing and pinpointing is well, I'm still learning to pinpoint well. So pinpointing doesn't end. It keeps going. Yeah. And then to measure, which measuring frequency was the first time I really learned about frequency, which is critical, which is something that isn't spreading as fast as I wish it would. Yeah. Understanding frequency. And then we did charting and I 
got a little bit onto charting, a little bit more from that workshop. And then, of course, the fourth step was try, try, try again and to make decisions with your data and to use the data to, you know, make those better instructional and personal decisions. Can you, can you talk, well, there's so many questions I want to ask you out of that, but just, <laughs> just while you're on to that, try, try, try again. Can you just talk a little bit more about that? Because your face lit up when you said that. Oh, yeah. Well, it's, so many people collect data and don't use it. They yes. don't keep trying to change it to get what the, you need. And so it was fun to say, instead of decision-making, which sometimes I write, I try to write, try to keep working at it. That's the endurance. That's the knowing that they can do it. See, I, I take total responsibility for my learners. Yeah. It's not just their job to learn. It's my job. It's our job. We're a team. And so, you know, it really makes a difference that we partner together and that we keep trying. They have to keep working at it and I have to keep working at it. So that always makes me feel kind of lighter about the data when the try, try, try again, Yeah, you yeah. know. Okay. Uh, so you go to this course, you're, you're opening your teaching practices, well, to behavioral science, really, and charting. But back then, so this is, what year was that? Was this around... This was in 1970. So was the chart around then? The chart as it? Oh yeah, it they had right. the behavior. Yes, yes. So it was called the behavior chart back then. It was called the standard behavior chart. The behavior then it behavior. went to yeah. standard acceleration chart. And now my good friend Clay Starlin, who's you know been a precision teacher for a long time. In his new book, I believe, I'm quite sure he's calling it the standard learning chart. And that's what my parents love because they'll ask me, can I see that learning chart? Yeah, right. They're not going to ask me, can I see that standard acceleration chart? Yeah. I mean, it's it's not a word they use very much, but learning, they want to see the learning chart. Yeah, okay. Wow. So how did you take the next step? So you've, you've learned to chart, presumably, through this workshop. You're still in the classroom? At this point? Yep. I was still, well, I was a consultant for the big federal project that okay, sent me right. to Washington then. Yeah. But the next thing I did after having meeting Og and Eric is I went to Eugene, Oregon and saw Ann Starlin's classroom of second graders. And that was the moment, it almost <laughs> makes me cry. Oh, That's the moment that I knew I was going to become a precision teacher oh. no matter what. Because those little children, a couple of them could chart, and they were doing timings from the young, from the child with the least amount of skills to the most. I went up, I'm doing better. They were, I saw the light went on when I saw it being done. And I encourage everyone that wants to be a precision teacher or learn about it to go see it, experience it do it, but go see it too, where other people are doing it. That's what convinced me was that classroom. How did you first meet Anne? How did you get an introduction? Well, she was a student of Eric Houghton's. Right. Clay Starlin and Anne Starlin were both students of Eric's. So that's when I met her. Eric suggested that I go see her classroom. Right. Because I said, okay, I see all this and I, how am I going to do it all? I, I just... I wanted it, but it it seemed like a lot of pieces to kind of put together. 
So what did you see in the classroom? Because, you know, all of my learning comes from one-on-one instruction. Uh, I've taught direct instruction in a group, but, but tell us what you saw when you got to that classroom. Well, I saw involvement. Yeah. That was a big thing. And I saw the kids feeling good about what they were learning. I saw a beginning understanding of the skills and what children needed, the students needed to do to, in order to progress to the next step. Yeah. You can't yeah. just keep moving them. Oh, here's a group that learning to write their numbers. Oh, here's they're learning to do addition and then some subtraction. But what is the sequence and how well do they need to perform, which is a range, it's not a number. Yeah. Uh, so that they can really retain it and move on to more difficult things. And um, they had grouped kids into <clears throat> similar type skills or how, how had she arranged her classroom so that she could do that? Well, she, boy, she had all the charts up on pegboards in the really? back. So the kids could retrieve their charts. Wow. And then she went around and charted. And then the kids that she had taught to chart, charted, helped other kids chart. Wow. And, oh, well, once I taught children to chart, the chart was mine forever. Because I taught my second grade class how to chart by, again, breaking it down. Yeah. you got to know the days of the week, forward and back. You have to know one to 10 forward and back. And then you have to learn to estimate between 10 and 20. Ooh, because it's an estimation. There's no line. Yeah, there's no line. And the kids would pass charting from one to 10. And then they'd get 15 per minute or more. And then they could chart from, from one to, to 20. And then they would get that. And then they'd chart one to 100. And they passed it just like they would pass going from math facts, from sums to five, sums to 15 sums to 20 so I taught them to chart and in the end of the year I still had one little boy who struggled with charting yeah because he couldn't estimate between numbers he had a lot of learning issues yeah. but the other kids all helped him chart yeah right and once when they <laughs> when the kids would chart their dots would be so big and when all Glinsley came to visit <laughs> I was so worried he was going to be critical of the charts that the kids were doing, you know, because they weren't pristine looking charts. <laughs> they had big dot. One dot might take up Monday and Tuesday. So anyway, he came and he just was so pleased. And he said, I don't care if the dot takes up the week, as long as those dots are moving up and oh, they're yeah. learning. <laughs> as long as it's a learning picture. Oh, yeah, it, good. it was so good. He was so pleased that they were involved in telling him about how they were going up and doing things that some of the things I was worried about, like what shape the charts were in, nothing to do uh, They'd make a face change and they wouldn't get a ruler. They'd just draw a line. Yeah. 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 But uh, I'm really pleased that I was able to teach individuals, groups, classrooms. You know, I've had a lot of different experiences with different disabilities, too. And we had a medical doctor come to us when we had the learning center. And that was a he taught me. Never to be afraid of whoever's coming in my door. Yeah. What are their strengths and needs? You know, when he came, I thought he was coming to complain about his daughter because she had come to us 
And we had done a wonderful job with her and she was doing so well in school. And so they had stopped her coming. And then he came and the office person said, well, Dr. D is here to see you. I thought, oh, my goodness, he's going to complain. And I thought uh, I, we did everything I knew to do. And, and she was doing so well. He came in and I said, well, what can I do for you? He said, I want to attend your center. Wow. <laughs> well, what can I do to help you? So he described to me, he had a photographic memory. Yeah. But he could not distinguish I and F for two vowels. Wow. His vowel discrimination, but he had a photographic memory. He told me when I give lectures, I can't have anyone ask me a question because my I have a picture of my whole talk in my mind. And if someone distracts me with the auditory, I can't follow. God. So we had to really work on his auditory system. He did amazingly well. But he would tell me once in a while, oh, I did really well because I visualized it all. He'd say, I have to keep that turned off when I'm over here. <laughs> wow. But he'd gotten through medical school and... Yeah. Oh, yeah, because he's brilliant and really known as an outstanding cardiologist in the Napa Valley. Wow. That's why I was so stunned. But it doesn't matter. You could be very, very, very bright and still have your different pinpoints or different systems that aren't working as well. Yeah. And um, he taught me so much. Uh, more than I ever taught him, he taught me, I'll tell you. And, wow. Uh, you know, it, one night, though, he I'll never forget one night that one of his teachers came to me and said, something's wrong his, with Dr. D tonight. And I so I went and found him. I said, what's going on? He said, oh, I've been up for two nights doing surgery. I'm so exhausted. And I said, please go home and come back when you're rested because your charts, look at your charts. They're all dropping off. You know, yeah. That's pretty amazing, isn't it? That like. We've had kids that, you know, you sit down, and you start working with them and they might be kids on Ritalin and like two timings in, you're like, okay, call mom because I don't think they've had their medication today. Yeah. <laughs> like the chart will tell you, right? <laughs> oh, no. And you can see, oh, there's so many things that show up after Halloween, the amount yeah, of sugar. sugar. Yeah. <gasps> yeah. I remember Dr. Kim telling me, Kids would, you know, that that were at her clinic for, say, all day. They would go out to lunch with their parents. They would come back and she'd be like, what do they have for lunch? Yeah. Chart's telling me that they had bad food for lunch, <laughs> colorings or yeah. something that's impacted them. And what happens on a Wednesday night, I asked one mother. Yeah, right. Why is this chart falling off every time on a Wednesday? She said Tuesday night he goes and stays with his father and stepmother. They don't put him to bed early. His chart, it just went along Not and it, Wednesday. You know, it's just a total readout. And the father changed when the father saw the chart, his the wife had ex-wife had him come in and look. And I talked to him. They changed totally and put him to bed early and he did really well. Yeah. I, yeah, it is. It is quite interesting what we learned from <laughs> from the consistent charting of data. When you are teaching your little grade Two students, I think you said, um, to chart. Would you be like one-on-one -on -one with them and then the other kids would be doing their own thing or did you teach them to chart in a group? I taught it in a group on the overhead. Did you know anything about direct instruction back then? Oh, yes. Oh, you direct, did? 
Ziggy Engelman was, I, that was in Oregon at, when I was at the, you know, I moved from California to Oregon. Yeah. And, and Ziggy and Wes Becker were there. In fact, Wes Becker even came to our wedding. Oh, really? I mean, wow. So DI people were all over the place and so were precision teachers. That was, yeah. I mean, the University of Oregon did a lot of training on some real, real wonderful things. Right. So you would have seen DI and, and PT incorporated back then. Yeah. Putting those two together is so powerful. I mean, it's really important. I kind of look at, at the whole educational process as having a, a teaching plan. And that's where DI comes in. It's really a strong part of your teaching plan. You need to know, as uh, Kent Johnson would put it, methetics. But methetics goes to DI. You know, I mean, anyway, you need that as your teaching plan. You need a practice plan. Boy, do we need to know about practice. Yeah. And you need a measurement plan. And precision teaching, to me, is the finest measurement plan there is. I mean, I've try to learn from any measurement plan because having a measurement plan is really, I draw it around as the happy learner. I put my teaching plan, my practice plan, and my measurement plan. Having all three of those together means you're going to have a happy learner. Yeah. So that's why I call it the happy learner model. (laughs) Yeah, right. In the beginning, I wish that someone would have told me that precision teaching is the measurement plan, because yeah. calling it precision teaching, you almost think it's your teaching plan, but it's not. You need your DI, you need your foundation, you know, you need some understanding of curriculum. Yeah. And you surely need to be a good coach, because being positive in practice is so important. So you're in, let's go back to where you were working then in this program, were you teaching other teachers then? How how did you jump to incorporating what you'd learned into back with the learners? I was helping other teachers, but I got to a point where I didn't want to teach other people because I had so much to do myself, yeah. you know? Yeah. Uh, and and I, I mean, we worked long hours in those days and we used more paper, as the principal said in <laughs> at a staff meeting. Somebody's used more paper. This was like uh, <laughs> December, January than we used all last year. Wow. And Vicki, who was another teacher who I'd been teaching precision, we knew it was us. Yeah. And so we both looked at each other and he's, this is at a staff meeting. He's announcing that we used all this paper. And then he said, and I know who's doing it, but they never send kids to the office. They love their teaching. Then he went down a hole and we sat there just going, oh, my gosh, he's not going to discipline us. He's saying we did a good job. So you've got so you're now back at the school having learned all this, all these things about precision teaching. So you start enrolling other teachers to show them what you know. Is that how that happened? Yeah. And, but in, when I moved from Oregon to Washington and then to Toronto, I used to say, I'm not teaching another teacher and, and Linda House, who I'll never forget, she came over across the hall and she put her fist down on my desk and said, you're going to teach me this precision teaching right away because your kids are doing a really good job. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I eventually started working with on a support team with teachers right. in Hastings County in Canada. 
Because right. once we moved to anyway. So how did we get to Canada? We missed a big step here. Okay, well, I went from California to Oregon and then to Washington, which was the toughest job I ever had in my life when, when I taught in Washington. I got voted teacher of the year by the school district. Wow. But I had the bottom of the first, second, and third grade, a full class of 30 kids plus a kindergartner who had significant problems. Wow. It almost killed me that year. Wow. I had Harold Kunzelman and Eric Houghton, though, to be my team members, and they helped me. But it was a real interesting year. I would never recommend that someone take on all that at once. Yeah. Did you have anyone helping you in the classroom? No, I didn't. But I had all the kids. I had all the kids were my teachers. I taught every one of them to be a teacher. And this was a real low socioeconomic area, too, because I used to take the kids home with me. They, these kids had free breakfast, free lunch. It was a school where kids really... Wait, you took uh, the kids home with you? Yep. <laughs> oh, you know, the things we used to do are, are, just wouldn't happen in schools today. Yeah. I mean, took kids home. Well, look, Terry Harris and the... The whole thing with the Terry Harris story. Can we talk about that? People... I, mean, I know we're jumping all over the spot, but I mean, Terry is very famous, right? How did yes. You, when did you first well, meet with Terry? I spent a half hour after school with him every day for two years. Wow. Now, what is where would you ever hear that happening in a public school? No. But he needed individual one to one because. Yeah. He could read and he keep up orally, but he couldn't move his hands and right to write. You know, he couldn't write, and we had to go through all that stabilization and working. And I couldn't do that in the classroom. There was no way he needed one to one. So this um, this is a, a big love of yours, though, isn't it? Writing and handwriting and and all. Of those. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Because of Terry, mainly he taught me so much about it that yeah. Like, how did you learn the the gross motor and fine motor coordination stuff? Did you teach yourself that? Basically, I did by watching Terry Harris. Right. Observation skills. His hand was like this, so they told me to guide his hand. Yeah. But I couldn't hold on to his hand. He kept, you know, because of the cerebral palsy. But I watched him with a paintbrush. He brought that straight paintbrush down that stroke without moving. Right. Oh, man, I started having him paint. Then I put plasticine in a in a cookie sheet and he could stick it in and hold it steady. So uh-huh. I had to discover. I had to keep discovering everything he could do that was even near the movement I wanted. I had to accelerate it and develop it. Yeah. I, with the same time with the paintbrush, I decided, oh, we need to have a sandbox so he can put his pencil or the back of a paintbrush in the sandbox and steady his arm. Right. Would you believe that the school district within a week had a sandbox in my class, oh. regular classroom? Because we had a team of people when the, his, when his mother was, I wouldn't use the word attack, but when his mother came to the, superintendent of schools she was upset about yeah, what was sure. happening with terry yeah and so the whole board the school board she went to the school board the superintendent to everyone and 
they wanted to make sure he was going to be successful. So what I needed something like a sandbox, boom, it was there. Happened. Yeah. I mean, that doesn't happen very often in schools either. <laughs> I could wait a year for something to get requisitioned and put on my desk. Yeah. So this is a lot of this that you're talking about is shaping and like who influenced you in terms of the behavioral component on learning these skills. Because you were educated as a teacher, you learned precision teaching, but then well, learning the to two people that influenced skill. me the most in understanding the breakdown of it was, of course, Eric Houghton and Harold Kunzelman. Yeah. I mean, Harold was amazing contributor to precision teaching. And Eric Houghton, he knew to get from elements to tool skills to what we call foundation skills now. Yeah. He knew how to break things down and teach you to observe what it is that they can already do. And I really believe we don't do still do enough, even me once in a while, build their strengths and their needs. But don't ever forget what can they do? Get that going, get it going, get it going and get it up there to a level where they love it and it gives them energy and feels good. Then address their needs too. Yeah. I just can't say enough about that, that it just, it brings you back to motor a lot too. Yeah. This is where someone like Jonathan Amy and uh, who's doing a lot of motor development is really fantastic in his yeah. analysis of breaking it down. And yeah. I'm learning from him too. When he does something, I tend it or I watch it because I want to learn more motor. I knew some gross to find for Terry, but I'm not real good at the gross. I mean, I yeah. can learn more is what I'm saying. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he's a, I'm so lucky that he uh, is supervising me right now because, you know, I work with some really high need learners and I want to learn that piece as well because um, those little kids that you, you know, they need a lot of hours and they have to sit in a chair and engage in a lot of, you know, work. And uh, if you don't have their bodies, you know, in, in good tact, you know, you can't, they're not successful in pointing to stimuli or, or moving in the chair or engaging with you or he's an incredible soul, but you know, you only have to mention your name to him and he tears up. So <laughs> yeah, he, he loves you dearly. There's a lot of, a lot of hearts going around right now. Yeah. No, no, that's right. I just wish I could, you know, I had a camera. I could just look at your, you know, your journey and, and all of that learning undertaking so obviously, at some point, you and Eric got to know each other very well. well that's right. <laughs> that's right. How did that happen? I mean, you are you are a precision teacher in your own right, but you also obviously went on a journey with Eric. And and how did that occur? I think we were both seeking knowledge and learning, and he he thought I was an outstanding teacher, and I knew that he knew so much more that I needed to know. Yeah. And so we were a great team. Yeah. I, I don't mind saying, you know, uh, personally and professionally, we did a lot of good work together. Yeah. And uh, I, I don't know how it all happened, too. It's just, you know, it's one of those, another one of those blessings I have in my life yeah. that what I was able did, to. What year did you get married? Yeah. Uh, in 1971, I believe. Right. Wow. So this all happened quickly. And and then how did the move to Canada come about? Well, Eric was Canadian. Yes. And during the uh, Vietnam War, he really wanted to go to Canada. 
Right. But I had told him, look, I moved from California to Oregon and to Washington. I'm not going any further north. You know, <laughs> I had teased him about it. And then we went to Ontario, Canada, where he had grown up and went to school at the University of Toronto. And he met some of his old colleagues there and they offered him a job at York University and he wanted to go. So right. I said, I'll go. And what department was was his position in? In education. Education, right. Yeah, in, at York University in education. And his studies had been in education? Yeah, but, well, psychology, basically. Psychology. Eric was at Harvard when Og was at Harvard. Right. When Og was going to leave Harvard, Eric said, I'm going with Og because he's going out to do it with people, to special ed, to regular education. So he left Harvard and went to Kansas. Yeah. And then when he finished in Kansas, he went to the University of Oregon. Right. A lot of good things were going on in Oregon, but he decided to go to Washington. And then, like I said, we decided to go to Canada, which was a wonderful move. What did you do in Canada? Well, I got a teaching job. Yeah. You know, teaching uh, some kids with some significant learning problems, but... uh, It was very, very good. Again, he was teaching at the university. Of course, my classroom was constant visitors. Oh, right. Wow. Everyone wanted to see it. They could hear him talk about it. And so I had a guest book. My students would have whoever came in, sign the guest book and welcome them. And, you know, because I had older students. They were fourth through eighth grade students. In the same classroom? Yes. But they had learning different disability, you know, they were a special ed class. Right. And like, what sort of class size was that? Yeah, I think I had 15 students and I had an assistant too. Right. uh, But what was amazing is you, these kids had played games and weren't doing a lot of academic things the year before I had them. Yeah. And then when I started with them, we got, of course, into academics And uh, it was it was it was great because, like I said, people could come and see students using actually what we were doing. So were you developing your own assessments? Like where were you getting how were you deciding to what to teach? Uh, My own assessments from knowing the basic skills, breaking it down to what we call tool skills then or elements breaking it down and finding out where they were. I mean, the first dot on the chart tells you where to start. Yeah. If they can even do it or not, or what the behavior is. So we developed all really a lot of our own. Even when I had the private learning center, even now, I do a few standard subtests, but I don't use standardized tests very much. Yeah. But some of them give me a good guide. And summertime now, and that helps if they're timed, at least it gives you a frequency along with accuracy. Yes. But the best guide is just to see what they can do on it. Any skill that you want them to do from reading words to saying sounds to doing phonemic awareness to just breaking each of those down and starting with whatever benchmark you can start with. I sort of start where they are and break it down. I don't want them to think I'm just doing easy things. I want them to see where they are on their grade level too. 
Even yeah. if I only get accuracy on their grade level, I like them to read at their grade level. Yes, right. It's, it's a point of where they are. So these 15 kids that you have, like of all different presentations, was it just academic deficit or did they have language deficits as well? Yes, yes. Right. And some of them would be on the autistic spectrum now. Yeah. Yeah. But we didn't have that spectrum then. That diagnosis, yeah. But the kids were amazing. I mean, here, here's little Lee, who he, a little Jewish boy that I had, who had finally his, he had a bar mitzvah. And they invited me and my husband because they said he never would have had it if we hadn't, if I hadn't been his teacher. Because I told him we got to practice all this beautiful things he had to say. It's like a song and it's, you know, I had no idea what it was, but I helped coach him and showed them that he could do it. But Lee, at a presentation once to parents, I used to have the kids present on the overhead. They said, how come you time? And he got up on the overhead and he wrote his name, Lee, and he wrote it so slowly. It seemed like the, it was going on forever, you know, <laughs> finally L. And then he wrote it real fast. He said, that's too slow. This is too fast. Look at my name now. And he wrote it just perfect. The whole thing, the parents were like, oh, so was I. I went, oh, my goodness, you know, because he wanted to demonstrate too fast, too slow and just right. right. You know, and uh, but the students, they can all learn. That's all I know is I haven't met anyone that can't learn, but I have to go where they are. And I have to bring up their strengths. It takes figuring out. Well, sometimes you have to unlearn your own head and watch what they're doing instead of what you think the curriculum is. Yeah. Was this a, in your teaching career, was this a struggle because a classroom or, or a school will have a curriculum that they're attempting to teach or like wanting to incorporate with the students and you have to go back and go, but I want to teach them to uh, fluently turn over cards or you know, or, or learn to chart. Did you did you ever have any challenges in explaining to the school? That well, you- no, I'm very blessed during the time I mainly had school. Uh, then, of course, for 15 years, I had my private learning center. But I will tell you, <laughs> when I decided to go back to teach to double my pension, when I had the learning center and I was getting to the age where I wasn't going to run the learning center forever because that was a big job. Yeah. Wonderful job what we did. But, you know, I lived on five hours of sleep a night. Yes. I had all those employees. I had all the office people. I had all the students, the programs, the assessments. You know, I mean, it was wonderful. I wouldn't have missed it for the world. It was wonderful. But I decided, okay, If I go back to Canada and teach for two years, I can double my pension. Yeah. I went back. I could not do it. Really? My sister, who's a teacher, said, you've never quit anything in your life. And I said, this is not a healthy place for kids or for me. Yeah. They they have the guide. You're supposed to be on a certain page doing a certain thing, doing, you know, I'm sorry. They're individual people. So I, I just told the the board was so nice to me. I mean, I have to say again, they offered to me to be a consultant. They taught, no, I said, I just want to teach first grade. I just want to spend two years in first grade. 
But uh, within three months, I had resigned. Really? Wow. Because I, I said, I don't, I'll work the rest of my life doing what's good, but I'm not going to put myself or these students through what's not right. It's yeah. not. I knew too much. That was all. It's so hard. Because I know exactly what you're saying. Like we'll have kids come to us for math and I look at what they're learning at school. Like they're covering complex concepts like fractions in one week. And the parents are like, can't you just start teaching fractions? And I'm like, your son can't add. Like, <laughs> and it's so hard to watch hard. these kids struggling at school knowing that at the end of that year they're not going to have mastered mm. any of those skills. No. And it just disappears all that time. All that time. It's so hard. And parents are like, but we want you to move them on. And I'm like, I can't because you're, you're no, so sad. You know, it's so it's sad. Really, yeah. It saddens me. It saddens me when we know what we know. Because So, so what years did you run your centre? Uh, in 1989 to 90-whatever, I guess around 2000. Yeah. And where was that? It was in Napa, California. Napa. When so Og told us to go private. Yeah. Yeah. Og said, go private. So I said, okay, I'm going to try this. Well, you know, my husband, Eric Houghton, had died. Yeah. So I was in Canada and I decided, look, I'm going to go back where my family is in California and I'm going to go private. I'm going to try to have a learning center. It's a dream. And <laughs> it was like I said, uh, it, it's the parents that sold it. The kids and the parents sold the learning. I mean, I didn't even have to, to advertise after once we got going because people told people. Yeah. And I'm still friends with people in the Napa Valley. And my old office manager, she said to me not long ago, she said, I'm so glad I worked for you because I never walked down the street and people aren't thanking me for for working and helping their children. She said, thank you for me. You know, and it was a, that was all one-to-one. -one. We tried a few groups, but it was one-to-one. -one. Let's get them caught up fast. Let's get them back in the classroom doing what they need to be doing. That was our philosophy. And how did you start? Like, uh, was it just you? I just, it was just me when I started. Yeah. And my sister, who's a teacher, lives in Napa. So she knew people to introduce me to. Yeah. I spoke at the Rotary Club. I spoke to the principals of the school district. I just went around and took every opportunity to tell people what we could do. And then a few people came and they told other people. And um, it was amazing how fast it grew. And then it was actually Pat Lindemood from Lindemood Bell who told me that you should see students four hours a day, four to five days a week. I'll never forget when she told me on the phone. Yeah. And um, I said, oh, no one's ever going to pay me that much money to see the kids that many hours. Well, I was dead wrong. Wow. As soon as I started telling people, look, let's clean it up right away. Let's not let this go on twice a week for how many years to get them yeah. caught up. We can do intense. And people took kids out of school and sent them to us. Yeah. Uh, I was amazed by 
how important intensity is if you really want to clean up yeah. something in the hear channel or the see channel or the language, you know, I really recommend people do as intense as possible. That's yeah. all. It, it sometimes it's not. And right now I see most of my students twice a week in the summer. I see them more. Yeah. You see the difference on the chart, right? Like, like, yeah, we had this little boy whose math facts was so slow and then we do an intensive enrollment for two weeks and you just, the, the lines start going up and then parents go, we just want to come twice a week. And I, I have to say, I, I, it's not fair on him to only be practising twice a week unless he's going to be doing his own flashcards at home, right, and practising. Yeah. It's just not fair on a learner to expect to be able to make improvement on just a couple of hours a week. Yeah, so here you are. So then you have to start employing and training people. And Oh, yeah. And we, had, we did wonderful training with our staff. And we had graduate students from the University of, of Texas and the University of Reno. But Elizabeth, you keep saying we, but it's really I, isn't it? Like, well, it, no, it's always a team. Yeah. If it wasn't for Carl Binder, oh my gosh, I couldn't have done it without Carl. Okay, In so fact, to meet Carl. Carl was a was at Harvard, and he was a grad student, and he worked with Og and Eric and B Barrett, yeah. and a whole team of people. And when I said I was going to start a learning center and I was still living in Canada, Carl flew up and helped me make a whole business plan Wow! of what I was going to do. No, no, it's, it's, I'm always a team. It's we, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I have all picture of Og and Eric up in my classroom here. And uh, I always say it's we, you know, because sure the details of it all, you do it, but you need a team of people. Yeah. You know, I firmly believe that if, like you said, with Aug and Eric, Harold Kunzman and they were all a team. And then Eric and I became a team. And then now I have people like Kent Johnson. I'm on a team with Kent from Morningside, you know, and I team up with Kendra and Donnie on a writing project, you know, from fit learning. And I team with Jonathan and Shell. I I, yeah. I like to work with people. Yeah. So you you had your learning center until eighty nine. Yeah. And what did you do after that? After I had the learning center, and then when I closed that and tried to go back to Canada, then I just came here to where I live now in Jackson and started tutoring students and trying to write programs to help more people like uh, one of my parents that I helped her son right here locally she's on my case and we're writing a program called the learning coach program to try to train just parents to do the basic yeah so you know I've been seeing students and writing programs developing more curriculum which sometimes I get published and sometimes it's all in these binders I have tons <laughs> looking at you and there's just hundreds of binders behind you <laughs> and there's more beside the other side there's more in the garage <laughs> yeah wow <laughs> how many students do you still work with uh, I have five students right now wow that's a luxury right yeah it's a lot and I, I love it and they're they're all very special to me and one of my students I work with on zoom only one 
He, I've been working with Roby. He's a, a young man on the spectrum since third grade, and he's 25 now. We Zoom wow. once a week, two hours. He's just a great student. He's learned so much. He texts me and sends me pictures all the time. And really? we're, he, he actually lives with us in the summer now when he comes up here. He's never been away from his parents except to live with us. Wow. And his mother had to go away one summer. And I, she said, I'll have to take him home. And I said, do you think he could stay with us? And she said, he's never been away from his dad and I, but let's try it. We tried it ever since he's been staying with us and he does really well with us. He's learned a lot. We've learned a lot, but yeah, it's just enough to keep me busy and interested in what's going on. <laughs> you also do a lot of consulting too? I do some consulting. There's a lot of young people doing really good consulting now, and I try to get people to team with them because I used to go to, to Minnesota and, and Wisconsin. I used to go a lot of places, but I'm not as keen to jump on airplanes anymore, yeah, anymore. <laughs> with all my stuff. <laughs> you yeah. know? But there are young people that are doing really good work, and it's you just have to find who your team's going to be, who matches you. Yeah, We don't all match everyone. I mean, I learned that through just trial and error, that's, but there's a lot of different people doing very good work. Yeah. Who are, who are those people? For, for the people that are listening to this podcast, who are some people that they could reach out to who are consulting and offering help? Well, certainly, if I was learning brand new, one thing I'd do is go to Morningside Academy. I go there anyway just to get a fix. I love going to Morningside. I feel so good when I see those students learning. And Kent does a wonderful job, and Andrew and the staff there for the summer program certainly reach out there. Yeah. Uh, there's all the fit learning people. There's Amy and Liz Octave. They're doing a consulting group. They're a group that could help anyone. Yeah. Clay Starlin knows tremendous amount, Carl, Clay, but they aren't doing as many consulting things probably now. But Jonathan, Amy, yeah, Shelly Yike with her whole group. These are just people I'm in contact with. Yeah. There's lots of people doing very good things that, that like uh, Danielle in her, oh gosh, I got to remember. Yeah, I can the put name. these in our resources so people have contact. And there's, yes. There's, yes. Of course, there's Facebook and groups and everything. There's so many. You can out. just go on fluency. I mean, uh, standard acceleration and tell what you want to learn and see yeah. if you can match someone to, to the kind of learning you want to do and then see if you match. You know, again, if you don't, find someone else to work along with. But as you know, they're so willing. I mean, I just see it as so many people are willing to help each other. I think as it's been explained to me is that many of you were influenced by Og and and by Eric and others, and you felt blessed to have uh, learnt from them and you want to share what you know and impact more learners in that way. So, yeah, I've been just overwhelmed by how willing people are to help and and not make you feel stupid in the process <laughs> because, as you say, when you first uh, start to learn precision teaching, there's a lot to know and you, 
You say that you're still learning even now? Oh, yeah. You know, just the other day I thought, I'm learning what Aug taught us the child knows best. I turned it to the learner, because especially when I had a medical doctor, I don't want to use child, you know. And then I turned to follow the learner. And I was trying to count how many decisions I allow Mason, my student, to make on his own from not me making them, but teaching him how to make decisions. Do you want to do it again? What's your aim for today? So I'm learning how to turn over so that he learns internally about himself. Yeah. That's so important, you know, and I've made a lot of decisions for our learners without teaching them how to do it. So that's a new learning for me. And I'm loving it because the kids are going, I'm doing it again. I'm going to hit it today. I'm going to, you know, they're, they're getting more jazzed by the process because I'm learning how to let them be in charge more. Yeah. So there's just, I don't know. They're just constant. Well, it's like the hear channel or the see channel how to help children who have what we call, we call them channels, but anyway, auditory processing or visual. There's so many things to learn in those areas. The the whole auditory system with phonemic awareness is just, it's just amazing to me how refined some students need it. And there's so much to learn. Yeah, and I, of course, I love learning because then they make good growth and then I can see them doing it, you know, and they're so happy. They feel so proud of themselves when they can go to school and read or write their names in cursive. You know, I'm teaching. That's another thing I've learned is I don't teach a lot of cursive anymore, but I do teach kids to sign their name. Right. And then they want to write all their parents' names and their cousins. And then before they know it, they know the whole cursive alphabet. Right. Just, you know. So we have your writing manuals in our clinic. We refer to them every day. We have, uh, you know, photos of how to set up a learner and how to seat them and how to have the uh, paper position. And uh, we're so grateful for all of those materials. They have a big impact on fit learning and on our, my team in particular. In fact, today we'll be doing today. As I head off to work, we'll be doing some training in penmanship um, using your uh, manual. So people can still buy those materials, right, on yes. your website? Yes, they're still available, and soon they'll be online. A parent oh. is helping me. He's scanning them, and there will be so much less expense and everything, and people can just download them. It's coming. Wow, those materials are very cheap, and um, there's nowhere else in the world where you can get all of your learning such an incredible, reasonable price. Um, so anybody that is wanting to learn more about, uh, well, of course, you have, uh, what What are the materials that you sell? You have your phonemic awareness program and your uh, handwriting manuals. We have some math. You have some math materials on there. Yeah. And, uh, what else? Over <laughs> so many years. Isn't it funny? <laughs> Uh, phonemic awareness. I think that's math foundations, handwriting, and the phonemic awareness. Yeah. But I have a lot more things that I'd love to share that we've developed. But it, it now that I think we can scan it and put it online, 
just a little thing on rhyming, for example. I have a whole unit on rhyming over the years. I have a whole unit on some vocabulary I'd like people to know. Uh, you know, there's a lot of things that we've developed because I don't know, I'm always developing because yeah. I'm watching the student and what they can do and then develop from what they, you know. So it would be fun to have a whole bank where people can just download it. So that's what I'm hoping this yeah. father's going to help me. That's good. You need an intern that can help you uh, do some of that. <laughs> <laughs> So it's just you now? You don't have anyone working for you? No. Well, my husband helps me, a father who's doing the scanning of the materials, and then the I, Renee, the mother I told you, was helping me put the learning coach program together. So yeah. I do have some help. Yeah. But, you know, not I don't work as many hours at it as I used to. I guess I can put it that way. I wanted to ask you a few questions. Um, I don't want to take up too much of your time. I could – I have – I would love to have you back because um, there's some things that you said about pinpointing and um, I hope if I say this out loud, maybe this will happen, um, that John Eshelman is going to come back and do a podcast on put it on a chart. It's called just put it on a chart. That's a, um, But we would, I would love to talk to you about pinpointing because you said even your learning is still continuing on pinpointing and that would be a fantastic topic. But I did want to ask you, because this is something that's um, so dear to me since I talked to Abigail, and that is, do you chart your own data? Have you? Oh, yeah. I chart my steps during this whole pandemic, you know, with the COVID and all. I've been writing, I do a think right every day of my gratitudes. Oh, I, I just that. do a minute. And I'm always between 10 and 15. It's really helped me. And it just takes a minute to do it. Yeah. And, and then because of the influence of Eric Houghton and his fair pair, I do also do a timing on my challenges, a minute. What are my challenges of the day? Things that I need to, to do. So I keep track of those. And do you, um, them, do you still pencil and paper chart? Yes. I'm totally a pencil paper chart person. <laughs> I well, the computer and technology is in my way. I'm not as smooth yeah. with it as some people are. Yeah. But yeah. I personally found that a lot of people who put data on the chart electronically don't look at it and use it. Try, try, try again. They don't make enough decisions. Yeah. There's something about putting that dot on that paper Yeah, that you've got those other dots. But I think the computer will someday flash to you when the data is not moving right and say, you need to change. Or it could ask you every day, do you need to stay the same? Change? Continue? Change? And, you know, it's somehow the computer could help with the decision-making that something needs to change. Yeah. Because if you put that on there and just go on to the next thing, you're not looking at it. You're just putting it in the computer yeah. But are yeah. you looking at the chart every day? I don't know. I'm not against it. I just, I'm just a paper pencil person. That's all. Yeah. Well, there's something powerful, isn't there, about dropping that dot on the chart and seeing it, seeing the learning unfold as it occurs. Yeah. Yeah. I know um, Bob is quite passionate about uh, just some 
some things that can occur with acceleration lines on using uh, computerized programs, and it's given me so much help in understanding acceleration. Yeah. And no, that's right. It's you know, it, to me, it doesn't matter. I I'm not pro con. I'm just myself. I'm a it works for you. And yeah, person. because when you have so much to do, the response effort has to be very low, right, to be able to do that. So that yeah, I. I um, have parents that, thanks to Abigail, I guess, have been really motivated to get my parents making positive statements, just one minute of positive statements a day about their child's progress so that they're observing and seeing improvements and they have, you know, they can draw upon those uh, positive thoughts very easily. So can I ask you, because it really helps me to understand how that looks, where, where do your charts sit, those charts that you keep on your own behaviour, where do you have them? I have a potion on the bathroom. Well, I have a binder for my one-minute timings, but my steps I keep in the bathroom on the back of the door. Oh, nice. So you can see it? Because I take my pedometer off every night and I chart. Nice. When I do my timings for gratitude and, and challenges, I have a little binder that I just keep with, you know, notes in it and stuff, and it has my projects. Yeah. And have you ever... So I, when I told Abigail that I'm doing this and my team have all taken on charting positive statements and then last year, actually, on the last day of the year, we really wanted to have a strong finish to the year. So we took a group uh, positive statements in the clinic and I think it was like 12 on day one and by day four of that week, I think um, we had 122 positive statements in the clinic at the end of the day um, because Abigail is like chart your data. So we just have these little digital timers around the clinic for charting positive statements from the team. What else have you charted on your own performance? Well, I've charted my weight before. I've charted bites of food. Uh, when we took courses at the University of Oregon, we had to do social, personal, and academic things on ourselves and present oh, them wow. in class. So that was part of how you got credit to be a precision teacher. You had to study your own behavior, which I'm so thankful that I you know, had that opportunity Abigail shared with me that uh, she just started tracking positive statements about her relationship and she reckoned, <laughs> I told her she could publish a New York best-selling book by saying, uh, you know, how to save your relationship in, um, in two weeks, in one minute a day. What are some things that you've done that were profoundly impactful on your own behaviour? Well, I counted fears. Oh, that yeah. was a big thing. That was when I was at the years ago at the University of Oregon. It really helped me see how ridiculous what I did is I counted them. Yeah. Then I did a one minute timing on them at night. When I counted them, it didn't go down very much. Yeah, right. But when I wrote them, when they weren't happening, I could laugh about them and say, what am I doing wasting my time on that is a fear. I don't need to have a fear about that. Yeah. You know, so writing them when they weren't happening helped me understand the behavior as it happened and what it was when it wasn't happening. Yeah, right. That was a big thing for me because I, coming from a sheltered sort of small townish thing and going out into the world even when I went to university, I was nervous to be around a lot of people in the city. I wasn't used to navigating the bus system, the taxis, the people that, you know, I mean, I grew up where everyone almost knew everyone. Yeah. And 
you hardly had, if a stranger was in town, you knew it was a stranger. All of a sudden I'm in the city where there was all these strangers, you know? Yeah. So those fears that you would write down there are thoughts that you would write one minute a day about what was occurring or what sort of Like I would just write what the fear was, like uh, driving when people are speeding, uh, a stranger smiling at me made me fearful of whether they want, you know. I, I would just write those down. And would they be relevant to that day or they're just yes, to the day, to the day, yeah. During the day, yeah. Yeah, that, that was really good. Letting go of tension was something I counted for a while. Just okay. feel tense, let it go. I wore a bead counter. Great. Where did you get that bead counter from? I, you know, I have a picture of Abigail with her bead counter. Yeah, you can get them, you can still get them from, well, you have to contact Clay Starlin. Oh, really? He, he has someone that makes them and they're very good. She does the beads and everything and Clay knows if you contact. Okay, I'm going to I'm gonna track down Clay because I just watched a, a video on him. I can't believe how young he looks. You guys in the precision teaching community, I tell you, anybody that wants to stay uh, looking young, you should seek out these people uh, Bob Washam, Abigail Corkin, uh, Clay Stell, and I just saw a video on, uh, who else did I want to say? Michael Maloney. You guys all look 30 years younger than you are, uh, so there's got to be something in that. <laughs> um, well, I think we live in a pretty exciting, you know, it's, if you really want to, well, I learned that from Eric Houghton. Well, maybe I learned it as a child too, but Eric Houghton told me when before we got together and got married, look, the most important thing to me in my life is making a contribution. I'll never forget when he told me that. So he said, I really care about you, but I yeah, you've got to know that, you know, and I think helping other people and being part of something that really does change lives. Yeah. In a positive way. Yeah, it gives you a purpose. Just keeps your spirit young, keeps your energy, you know. Uh, I don't know. It just seems that way. But anyway, you can get a big counter through Clay. Okay, well, I'm going to find out how to contact that amazing and If man. you don't, just email me and I'll send you Clay's email. You know, I, okay. I have her name he somewhere. You might get this but... massive order. Because... <laughs> <laughs> I wonder how he makes them. I'm so interested to know that, but I um, that's really helpful. And so many other things you said. There's also. so many things. And and when I had my business, I counted all kinds of things. Yeah. Money in, number of telephone calls per day, number. I mean, it's important. You can, you know, I knew when things were flattening out before it happened. Yeah. Like when the drought hit California years ago and I had the center and the Napa Valley was short of water for all the grapes, my data went flat for my students growing and it had been growing and it went flat and that was fine. We just cut back on things and then it went, when the drought was over, it took right off again. Yeah. It's yeah. amazing what you can follow with your data. Yeah, that's right because um, there's a lot of, uh, obviously, the use of social media and all of those things, but very few people keep data on all of this money they're spending on marketing and advertising and those things. So that's a good question for you then because behavioural science, there's a lot of things that can be improved or bettered or uh, the world can be a better place by the use of behavioural science. So as I look at your beautiful smile, it seems to me that you still remain hopeful 
about the ability of precision teaching and, and behavioural science to impact people in a positive way. Do you have anything to share about that? I do feel hopeful. I do feel, though, that the hope, to me, one of the hopes is that the parents will take more responsibility. The schools are not going to take the, as I see it from the 50-something years I've been involved in education across the United States and Canada, the parents need to be take on the responsibility of the basic education of their child. Now, they don't have to do it all, but they have to make sure the the kids that I see getting it or the parents that are, and I mean, even in schools where it's real poverty too, the parents who are involved, they know when the child is learning or not learning or doesn't want to go to school or whatever, but they need to be more involved. Uh, but I know we're learning a lot. We will know more. It will become more automated, electronic chart, electronic this, that, modeling, you know. Yeah. I don't know how all that's going to look, but it will happen. And I believe we will, like I said, as a as a society and as parents, I think of parents because somebody has to be responsible. And parents are great. I mean, mothers used to come to me with all kinds of questions. And I'd say, go visit the school. Go see what kind of program. You'll know if your child belongs there. And I tell you, when I gave them confidence, they knew if it matched or if it didn't match. I said, you're going to know. You're going to feel it. You're going to know that it's the place for your child to be or you don't want them to go there. Yeah. You know, and but I think if we said, you know, here are the basic, basic educational things that K to three students basically need to know. Yeah. I mean. My niece just came to visit. She's in fifth grade. She's as bright as can be. She can organize stories. She can organize plays and video it and have all the kids here making up plays and things. Her handwriting and her spelling are atrocious. Yeah. I mean, how could it be that she could be so smart? And I wouldn't have known that except she borrowed one of my books and wrote a story. Yeah. But I didn't look at it till she was gone. And then I looked at it. And I went, Ooh. so I want the kids to have the base. Yeah. You know, then I want application. I want good thinking skills. I want them to have all this making up plays and doing all this production is great. But come on. I want I'm her really to be get able that right early, right? Because otherwise you have those kids that come to you in year five practicing all of those errors along the way and yeah I see no, it's got to be k to three it's yeah, the to younger three. the better so what you're saying is parent education early to pick up these skills you know when kids are still in pre-primary and uh observing what their kids are doing and and understanding uh those component skills yeah and that's right and you know we can in my opinion, in precision teaching, as far as public schools and whole classrooms go, we need to go to monthly checks. That's what we did at the Catholic school. I worked wow. at a Catholic school consulting for five years. Yeah. A father who we helped his children who went there. He paid me to go there. Yeah. The school never paid me. He did. Wow. Anyway, 
We did monthly checks. And then we took the kids that weren't making progress monthly and gave them daily. It made all the difference. And not everyone needs one-to-one. Not everyone needs to chart every day. They need to practice every day. We know that. I mean, there needs to be practice on basic skills, but only those who need, who have learning differences or some niche that we need to address need one-to-one and they need it as we know more intensely than once a week or twice a week. Yeah. And those monthly checks, how did they look? What were you looking for? We were just looking for basic reading, writing, and math. Yeah. The one thing we did not have a good check on, we had a very good check on reading out loud. We had a very good check on their math facts and we had a very good check on their handwriting. The thing that we didn't have a check on is their language skills and comprehension. The teachers picked it up though, right away. They said, this, this, I know he's doing well, but he can't comp or he's got language. He can't talk in sentences completely. So, I mean, that was the only pinpoint we never refined really well was the comp. Were you using your own assessments for those monthly checks? Yeah, yeah. yeah. We had sheets that, that, that were for each grade level for the reading each month was different. Yeah. And math facts, they could pass to the next one. We had it all set up. And, and what, uh, what read passages were you using? Did you have your own read passages or would you? No, we used passages from... I, one time we used some from Read Naturally. Okay. Did and you- we used some from some other source that a teacher had. She liked, but I'm not sure. But we had grade level passages yeah. uh, that were for the students to read. And, and would you just take total time on a, on a passage? Or no, they one did minute, one, minute. one minute. They did one minute. Okay. Yeah. Total time. I use total time a lot, though. I do believe in total time myself. Yeah. yeah, okay, cool. So, but what you're asking of those teachers, it would be what, a one-minute read? How long would your math comp be an assessment on a monthly basis? The math like? fact would be a minute, and, the, and everything was a minute. But yeah. we, uh, I had a team of parents that came in and did the reading. Right. I had four wow. parents trained to do the reading for the class once a month. Yeah, but the teachers did the writing ones in the classroom, but the yeah. reading. So it's a few. What you're saying is, this is for teachers a few minutes a month to measure progress. That's all. And it was really amazing how much practice they started doing once they saw that it made a difference in. And we just charted the class as a group and watched them grow. And we knew who the bottom kids were and the top. And we used often wrote the the top kids. Yeah down too because I know we're dealing with learning issues a lot but I'm going back to family again but my nephew I want to tell that little story I have a nephew was I knew he was extremely bright he always did well in school when he was a junior in high school his mother told me that he was going to take the GED and quit high school so I talked to him right away and what do you, you know, I was like shocked. <laughs> he put me right in my place when he said to me, I mean, we talked and he talked about things. And then he said to me, Aunt Elizabeth, I'm so tired of sitting there all the time waiting for them to say something I don't know. Oh, 
And then I realized he he's such a smart. I mean, you know, and he's gone on to university. He works for a startup company now. They have to make him go home. He loves to do yeah. discovering of stuff on the, you know, the web and the things he's developing programs. And but he he was right. He was so tired of sitting there waiting for something he didn't already know. <laughs> Right. You know, so we've got the kids at the top, too, as well as the kids who have learning issues. Yeah. You know that we need to think about all children. It's the whole spectrum that need to make sure that that they have an opportunity to learn. Yeah. You know? But, you know, we got to keep making it easier. We got to learn more ourselves and then keep spreading it. And I have to believe it somehow it's going to get better. Yeah. (laughs) And do you know any schools that incorporate precision teaching into their classroom? Are you I don't know any public school. We had lots of schools in Oregon and Washington and then the Great Falls, Montana project. In Canada, we had all kinds of kids in classrooms, regular classrooms doing it. And um it's too complicated. It, that's why monthly checks, doing what I call one of the most important discoveries for me for precision teaching is achievable chunks. Right. We've got to take it into schools and achievable like monthly checks, a teacher can get her hands around. Yeah. Especially if you have the oral part done by a volunteer, you know, and then they do that and look at their data and say, oh, they know the bottom, you know, I mean, we have to make it achievable. Yeah. And uh, so I don't know any classrooms. The only schools I know are private, you know, like Morningside, Great Leaps, you know, there's always all the learning centers that are going and doing things like Richard McManus with the Fluency Factory and, and Michael Maloney doing what he's doing. I mean, these people are all, and of course, with FIT doing so many, we're learning more and hopefully it will spread. But right now. Yeah, we keep coming back to what Og said, though, which is he gave up on trying to change schools, right, uh, and advocated for what you did and opened your own centre. and uh, No, I still advocate for going private, but I still, I still see the need of so many children just yeah. to get their basics down. You know, I. I want him to be able to, well, like for myself, because of reading difficulty, I guess, too. But that was a struggle in my life. I wanted to read like everyone else. Yeah. And if it hadn't been for my mom, you know, I mean, those little guys want to read. I thought when I taught, they want to do it. They want to write their numbers. They want to do their math facts. They want to learn. So how can we give it to them? It's always going to be something I'll spend my whole life thinking how to make it better. <laughs> um, could you finish up, Elizabeth, because before I even met you, I knew that the heart was um, having the heart to chart is something that, you know, was associated with your name. What does that mean to you, the heart? How did that come about? And um, how does you say that you have hearts all around the place? I love that. We're going to go into the clinic today and put some hearts around to in memory of you and all of your contribution. Where does that come from? I think basically it came from Eric Houghton. Basically, I mean, he wanted to make sure that the care was there before the science. 
we I have big heart plus science up always, you know, I'm always talking about. And, and I'm very clear now that I try to help people want to be in precision teaching or not want to be in it. And I start with the big heart because that caring is really important. I don't want someone doing timings. It's like, it's like go and stop. We use please begin and thank you for our timings because we want to be gentle and supportive. And um, the caring part is the, the caring. I think then the team, I think I mentioned that the caring, the team and being a learner, yeah. the heart, you know, when you're a learner, you do have a heart. You kind of understand not learning and learning, <laughs> you know, both of those. So I really want people to have the big heart before they get into the, our science. The science, yeah. It, it, because it can be a pressure. Of course, the chart will just go flatten down the kids' pressure and they won't go anywhere and they give up anyway. Yeah. Really, but still, I want the joy of it. I, when Aug Lindsley, when he came to the Learning Center in Napa, well... It, it, I was nervous as could be. I mean, I, I, uh, anyway, he came and he, he sat quietly a whole day and watched the students and the teachers. And he didn't say anything and had lunch and he didn't say anything. I, oh, you know, what's going on? Anyway, after we, that evening, he said to me, this is a wonderful learning place. And I want you to pay your teachers more, and I want you to pay your students because they are working so hard. <laughs> and it took me about six months to how to pay the students. I knew how to pay the staff more. And I, you know, I said, okay, I'm going to try to make more money. I can cut my advertisement because the parents advertise, and I can use that money to pay my teachers more. Yeah. So I cut down on certain things and paid the teachers more. And how to pay the students. Well, I had a real hard time with that because to me, you learn because you want to learn. Yeah. But Aug was right. It took me a while to come up with the learning bank analogy. Right. That's how we put down everything they accomplish. Yeah. If you, you know, and so we keep track of their learning bank and they get a check at the learning center. When they had 20 things, they got a $20 check. Right. And from me, and the funny thing about that, by the way, is a bunch of my bookkeeper came to me once and said, something's wrong. All these checks aren't being cashed. Wow. I looked at the checks names and it was all students. So I started asking, they framed the money, the first oh, money wow. they ever made. The kids didn't want to cash the checks. They put them up in their wall in their bedrooms. <laughs> oh, wow. They were just having a certificate. They didn't want the money. They didn't want, the, they wanted the accomplishment, but still uh, I use it today. I, they, kids only have to get 10 things now and I give them a fresh $10 bill. This is when they've mastered a skill? Yeah. When they've mastered a skill, it goes on their learning bank. Well, I would say mastered a skill or accomplished a name that's, okay. you know, sometimes they finish a book. That doesn't mean they're fluent at their grade level, but that book they're ready to read at that level. 
So I make it individual for each one. I, 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 at first I had a bank that everyone needed to do because I wanted the basics, but now I individualize it. Yeah. And it depends what in the beginning I let things go on the bank easier as they get more sophisticated. They help me decide what goes on the bank. Oh, I'll do pass my sums to five and my sums to 10 and put it on the bank. Or I just want to put my sums to five on the bank when I get you know, to aim. So I, I do more individualizing with the bank now than I used to. But, you know, I mean, Aug was amazing in saying that to me because it is good. I mean, the thing is, it's like when I said my mother gave me rewards, my mom might be a box of fudge when I passed a book. My mom was so amazed that I took the candy and gave it away to my friends and my siblings. <laughs> she thought I would keep it. And when I give the $10 to my kids, a lot of them buy flowers for their mom or they'll buy something for their brother. It's yeah. not like they're selfish with it. I find that so interesting yeah. that Lovely. they're proud that. of it, but they don't possess it. You know, yeah. they they think about other people. Sometimes kids will say to us, we have a little store at the front and they'll go, oh, I really want to take this for my sister. And I'm like, but you want six hours for that? Six hours of work. They're like, no, I definitely want to give my sister these stickers. She'll love them. And I think that's so beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. No, I do too. But it shows that the accomplishment is in their soul. Yeah. That's what's so beautiful about precision teaching and having the kids get their foundation solid. Yeah, knowing that they're getting better. Yeah. yeah. Like even our, you know, most profoundly impacted kids. Well, my daughter um, um, among that, she knows what her aim is on everything. You know, she, she, she can even tell you the dates she passed programs and what aim she hit. And, you know, she's very in touch with her own behavior and her own learning. And it's so exciting for her to hit aim on something or retain something. And yeah, she gets points for that, but it's, She's very much in contact with her own performance now. So, yeah. And you can't get that when you tell kids a percent correct on a program. <laughs> you can't get in contact with your own behaviour in a, a meaningful way. No. Well, look, that's such a lovely, I've taken up two hours of your time. Can you believe that? Well, I really enjoyed this and I hope it's helpful to others, you know, of course. It's a pleasure meeting you. It's so inspiring to hear how much you still love your work and that the most important part of what you do is the, you know, being with the kids and seeing their progress and that's it's inspiring, I believe, and there's a thousand messages that you gave today. But um, thank you so much for everything that you shared. I would love to have you back when you have some more time to talk about pinpointing because this is 50 years of your experience and you tell us you're still learning. So uh, we have... No, pinpointing is so important. That's the first step to in precision teaching. And boy, it's a lot. And I'd love to talk about it. So let's right. do it. Let's I think it's helpful to everyone and it'll help really me helpful. all get, you know. Really helpful. Yeah, I'm um, I'm doing a lot of reading on that right now. And um, so thank you so much, Elizabeth Horton. Just, uh, your joy and uh, happiness and, and everything is just uh just so yeah, well, I like I said, I feel blessed to be a precision teacher. I yeah. really feel I'm just so thankful, you know. 
And I hope it spreads. But meanwhile, we got to keep ourselves learning. Maybe what um, what I can do is uh, share some information with people about how to chart their own gratitude statements coming out of what you said because uh, we're living in a really challenged world right now. In Australia, we are having this massive acceleration in COVID right now. We've been we've we've been a little bit protected from the rest of the world, but that's not happening. So, yeah, gratitude is so important, isn't it? And that's something you can put on a chart. Oh, it is so important. I'm so thankful to have written those so many times. And yeah, do you look back on those statements? Oh, yes. And sometimes I take one gratitude and I expand it. How do I keep it strong? Yeah. So I I kind of take one and expand it because, you know, you want to keep your gratitude list and you want to keep those things important. And you can, when things get stressful, like they are with COVID, it's hard sometimes. It's hard to draw. Especially in relationships can, you know. Yeah. Something that. Abigail gave me is write down the the nice things that people say to you and keep them close at hand. I think she she wrote down one of the things I said about her and and she was going to keep that next to her to remind herself of you know of um, her ongoing work and and uh, contribution and uh, dedication to the field. So so I'll share that with uh, everybody. I know this has just been such a blessing um, to my listeners and I've been so uh, encouraged by Bob Washam to reach out to you. He, he's just said the most beautiful things about you as a person and as a, a professional and as a teacher and contributed to this field. And, yeah, thank you so much for your time today. I feel really uh, emotional um, of having spent this time with you and being able to share this with our audience. So. Bless you for everything that you have done and continue to do and the uh, the number of children and learners and people that you have reached through your work, even across the other side of the world. And um, Well, I'm, I'm very blessed. And like I said, it's a we team. I've had very good people help me and I want to help others. Thank you so much. Bless you. Yes, we'll see you again. See you again. Bye now. Thank you for listening to episode five of the ABA and PT podcast. I hope you enjoyed listening to this incredible woman, Elizabeth Horton, as much as I enjoyed speaking with her. Please see our show notes for her references and links to her materials. In our next episode, Elizabeth is back to talk about pinpointing. That is how to identify observable actions or movements you are targeting for intervention to get a clear picture of learner behavior. Don't miss this next episode to benefit from Elizabeth's 50 years of experience in how to identify and record learner behaviors bringing the heart to science with Elizabeth Horton.